do this. Let's talk about talk. Hey there, I'm Dr. Andrea Wojnicki. You can call me Andrea. Welcome to Talk About Talk, the communication-focused podcast that provides us with the knowledge, strategies, and confidence to enrich our relationships and enhance our career success. This week, we're learning about what our possessions say about us. I thought this was the perfect topic to follow last week's podcast on fashion, where I interviewed Carolyn Quinn, the Executive Director of Toronto Fashion Week. If you haven't listened to that episode yet, Carolyn provides many actionable suggestions for us regarding what clothing to buy and how to choose an outfit. Today, we're going to dive into the implicit communication associated with our possessions, which includes clothing and a whole lot of other things, including our homes, our cars, our music and photo collections, our partners, our children, and even our online presence. For today's episode, I had the privilege of interviewing Professor Russell Belk, or Russ, as he likes to be called. I'll tell you more about his background and accomplishments in a moment. But first, let me tell you about the impact that he's had on me. As you can probably guess, when you're a doctoral student, you read a huge number of academic papers. There are the many papers that you are assigned to read by your professors, and then there are those that you choose to read because they're related to your own research topic. Russ's papers fell into both of these categories for me. Most notably, there's his seminal paper called Possessions and the Extended Self, which has almost 10,000 citations. Do you know what that means? That means that 10,000 other academic researchers cite his paper in their published work. Yes, he is incredibly influential. And yes, I am one of those 10,000. If you want to take a look at that impactful paper, I've included a link to it and other papers of his in the show notes on the Talk About Talk website under the podcast tab. If you skim this paper, you'll see that Russ has an uncommon ability to take an everyday phenomenon, like, say, expressing your identity or gift giving, and breaking it down into meaningful elements, and then building them up again to create a holistic theory. In his paper, Possessions and the Extended Self, and his follow-up paper called The Extended Self in the Digital World, Russ examines and integrates existing research in marketing and psychology to describe how our possessions are both a contributor to, as well as a reflection of, our identities. He quotes William James, who says that a possession is anything that we can call ours. He details, for example, collections, gift-giving, body parts, money, pets, other people, and even what happens when our possessions are lost. So, let's all take a look at what we're wearing right now. What do our clothes say about us, beyond the brands? What about the color, the style, the vintage? And what about our hair? Our hair is certainly a highly visible possession. What does our hair communicate about each of us? Now, consider the outside of your house or your apartment. What does your home say about you? And what about your pages on social media? What does your Facebook page say about you? Here's a good question. How conscious are you about what you're communicating through these and other possessions? And the question that I'm personally looking for an answer to, what mistakes do we make in terms of our assumptions regarding our possessions and what they say about us? Speaking of great questions, how about this one? Is an avatar a possession or a self? 
Or does it matter? Russ answers this question for us and shares some fascinating research related to avatars that may inform a life hack for us. Let me introduce Professor Russell Belk to you now. Russ is a distinguished research professor at York University and the Kraft Foods Canada Chair in Marketing. His work tends to be qualitative, visual, and cultural. He's received many awards, including the Paul D. Converse Award, two Fulbright Awards, and the Sheth Foundation Journal of Consumer Research Award for long-term contribution to consumer research. He's a fellow in the Association for Consumer Research, the American Psychological Association, and the Royal Society of Canada. He has over 650 publications, and his research involves the extended self, possessions, collecting, gift-giving, sharing, digital consumption, and materialism. Russ, thank you so much for joining us. I thought it'd be great to start with definitions. So maybe let's start with self and extended self. What do we mean when we say that? You you picked a difficult topic. No one agrees on what the self is, but I guess a, a simple way of thinking about it would be it's what we think about who we are and what others think about who we are. And so extended self is how that self is conveyed through the things that we own and the things that we do with them. So I I keep thinking the word identity, right? Yeah, self and identity are pretty much interchangeable. Okay. So I read in your paper this quote that I just pulled out because I thought it was interesting. The core self is a belief rather than a fact. Can you elaborate on that? Sure. Uh, We'd like to think that we have an inner self that is unchanging, that is the same self we had when we were children, the same self we'll have when we we are old and die. But that's not true. Our self is continually changing, continually evolving. There may be a few things. If I ask you who you are, you might say your name, where you're from, what you do. Um, It's a little bit different in different cultures. Um, In in India, people would begin with who their parents and their grandparents Mm. were and where they've lived and maybe eventually get around to them themselves. Uh, But by and large, what we answer to that question is what we think about who we are. And as we think about ourselves, we begin to bring in places, people, and things as as a part of that as well. That's what I'm calling the extended self. And does the layering of that... I don't know if you want to call it a hierarchy. Does that vary by culture? It does to some degree. Some cultures are less materialistic than Mm. others, and uh, some are more into lineage. And uh, Chinese culture, for example, uh, you owe a debt to your parents when you're born for making the gift of your birth to you. And so you pay that back over a lifetime, and even after they've died, you, for example, burn paper goods for them to use in the afterlife. Wow, wow. Okay, I want to get into materialism uh, in a minute, but first, let's shift now to the definition of possessions. And if I just think about possessions in the extended self, the first image that comes to my mind actually is someone who's driving a certain brand of a car. So the possessions that come to mind, I think it's kind of the low-hanging fruit in this context, is brands. But in your paper, you actually say that that's not what you're talking about exactly, right? I mean, it it can be brands, but it need not be. Uh, It it could be something that you found on the beach, and uh, that's a part of who you are, and you've saved it. Perhaps it becomes a part of a collection. But uh, 
Well, you say that's a low-hanging fruit. The car that you're driving might be a rental or it could be a part of the sharing economy, a zip car or something of that sort. So it's getting a little bit trickier. And the other thing that uh, is relatively new is uh, the digital uh, economy because those are intangible things. If we put something up online or if we download something, uh, those are possessions. We can we can legally own them and we can do things with them, but they're not tangible stuff. They're they're not uh, what we used to think about as being possessions. So, do possessions have to be legally owned? No, it's something that we think about as being ours. So okay. if I have students in a classroom and they sit in the same seat every time and I haven't assigned them, they begin to think of that as their seat. Right. And if someone else is in it, they get angry and upset. Does it have to be a noun? No, uh, you could call your temperament or something of ah. that sort what, uh, what you do. Uh, actually, we can really? define ourselves by what we do, what we have, and ultimately what we are in some inner sense of uh, who we think we are, predispositions, our values, and uh, so forth. So that's a little bit related to what I was talking to Professor Jerry Zaltman about in, mm-hmm. in when I was interviewing him. He said that he was at a farmer's market and he saw a sign on the wall that said, you are what you eat. And he's been thinking about, you are what you think. And he said, now, Andrea, you're saying... You are what you say. So it's, as you say, it's what we do, it's what we have, it's what we are, and as Jerry said, it's what we think, and as I'm saying, it's what you say. It's every- Those latter two categories are a bit more ephemeral. Uh, what you say becomes forgotten more easily than the house that you live in or the, or the car that uh, you drive. True. What you it's think can intangible. be... intangible. Is True. that... Well, and, and fleeting. I mean, it, it's there as long as the echo of that uh, sentence is, is there in your head or the thought that you are thinking is there in your head. But uh, tomorrow morning you may remember it differently and others may as well. Unless you're in the digital world. Sure. You're making a print there that uh, some would say lasts a lifetime. At least it's going to last uh, a while. I actually was listening to NPR the other day and they were talking about how people are starting to assume that it is there forever but then it's not, and they're freaking out when companies go under and sure. stuff that they've written is gone. Yeah, and you could have invested uh, a lot in it. And the same goes with wow. creating a digital avatar that you put great care into and spent real money uh, equipping and clothing and so forth. And that platform shuts and uh, you don't have it any longer. Okay, so one of the questions I really want to ask you is an avatar a possession or a self? Or does it matter? It's a pseudo-self, I would it's say. It's a pseudo-self. And, and a possession. That, uh, <laughs> it's, it, it's an alter ego. Um, people usually have some semblance of who they think they are or playfully would like to be. Uh, and so they've invested a bit of themselves in it, but it isn't identical to saying that is their self. It's not like the movie Avatar, where you literally become your avatar. Right go into an online world. And there's all sorts of fascinating research being done on that. People believe they can segregate themselves from or disembody themselves from the avatar, but then the avatar is taking on more and more of their own personality traits. Yes, and vice versa. If you assign someone um, a taller and more attractive avatar, they become more self-confident, and that self-confidence carries over offline as well when they're no longer operating through the avatar. If you give them an older avatar, they become more concerned with saving money. A more physically fit avatar, they become more concerned with exercise. (gasps) 
these uh, effects once again are, are carried over from the online world to the offline. So that's like a life hack, actually. If yeah. I want to be fitter, for example, my Bitmoji that I have, which I actually try to make look like me, mm-hmm. I should make it more fit looking with the more physically fit body type. I, I would put in a bit of a caution uh, here. <laughs> the, the studies that show that it carries over are when you're assigned a particular avatar. When you oh. choose it yourself, it may or may not be the same uh, sort of effect. Because I would have guessed the opposite because of attribution, right? Like I yeah. chose this, I want this, I'm working towards this versus it was randomly assigned. Unless you do it playfully. Uh, and in that case, you may not be taking it uh, seriously oh. or you're getting out your aggressions with the World of Warcraft oh. a hostile avatar that's not really you. Fascinating. Okay, uh, let me just... I have a couple other questions related to possessions. Are people... Other people, can they qualify as possessions, like my child? People would often say that, yes. And uh, even uh, a a dating partner uh, sometimes is referred to as someone that you're wearing, especially in the gay community. Or the notion of a trophy wife would also imply that uh, possession. When Veblen talked about conspicuous consumption, he talked about uh, moguls who would dress their wives and children in finery that uh, they themselves weren't particularly inclined to wear. Wow. So it was a vicarious expression of their wealth and who they thought they were. And it's extended self to another that they're considering as a possession, even if it's yeah, I mean, if, implicit. If, if your child or even your dog misbehaves, it reflects on you. Uh, and so a barking dog or a crying baby... Uh, is your responsibility and reflection of of you and your motherhood or fatherhood. I've heard catty mothers criticizing other mothers who dress their kids up. And it's like, does the kid really care that they're wearing designer clothes? That's ridiculous. And it's like, well, they're not doing it for the kid. They're doing it for themselves, right? It's kind of the same thing. True, but uh, even funerals are really not for the deceased. They're for the survivors. Right. we, We do that in other ways as well. Right. Fascinating. Okay. So I think one of the most important questions that the Talk About Talk listeners would want to hear from you is what are some of the ways that we may be communicating through our possessions non-consciously where we're telling people things about ourselves and maybe we should be uh, more conscious of the message that we're communicating when when otherwise we wouldn't be. Sure, I guess to think of a, an example where there's a conflict between how people would perceive us and the image that we're trying to communicate or implicitly communicating would be when we see an older person in a mini skirt and um, a, an outfit that we associate with younger people. Right. Uh, uh, we, we could in other contexts say, well, that person is putting on airs or they just don't know what's appropriate for their age uh, or, or who they are or who do they think they are. Dressing, yep. Dressing yep, you hear like that? that so, Particularly yeah. targeted at, at uh, women. But don't you think that they are conscious of that? Sometimes, yes, and sometimes it's, uh, you know, I, I don't care what other people think. I'm, I'm going to dress as I feel that makes me feel good. And uh, if other people look at me askance, that's just too bad. So there are people that are seemingly more impervious huh. than others. It's, it's so it, it's like um, the teenager who dresses up in black and they're all goth because they're trying to reject 
whatever their parents think they should be communicating through their clothing. Um, and then the kid just looks like a kid that's conforming to the goth culture, which yeah. is ironic, right? We, we all have these tendencies to try to fit in and to try to stand out, and different people have a different balance between those two things. Mm. But even nonconformists are usually nonconforming within an idiom. That is right. to say, it must be a, a recognize. you mentioned goth, a recognizable uh, type of nonconformity. Right. And uh, Grant McCracken, who's an anthropologist yeah. here in town, you've run yeah. into, I think, uh, talks about clothing as language. Uh, it is language, but only to the extent that we can fit it into an existing meaning system. So mm. if you wear a, a green top hat and an orange tutu and uh, Vans uh, sneakers and you're skateboarding uh, through a residential area, You'll be striking, but people won't know quite what to make of it. It doesn't fit into uh, enough existing codes, or there's too many conflicting codes. There's huh. degrees of conformity and, and uh, degrees of, of standing out, and uh, you know, uh, th th there's different looks that we might be trying, uh, different systems rather, that we might be trying to communicate within. And so cool, for example, is a different status system than the socioeconomic uh, one because right. it's, it's not so dependent upon wealth. It's more dependent on demeanor and uh, rather than putting on cool things, you're endowing things with coolness if, if you are taken to be a cool person. Ah. means you have a bit of an air of superiority and unflappability. Uh, you, you don't show emotions. Uh, these are some of the characteristics of cool people who have to pull that off so that their peer group recognizes them as being cool. And then what is cool is based on what that person has and how right. they talk and how they walk. And so it's like how they're displaying the possession or the clothing or the attitude, right? Yeah, I guess the attitude is kind of the start of it. And then the accoutrements become uh, the definition for other people of what is cool. And there's sort of a, a trickle-down effect here, too, mm. where less cool people adopt these things and the cool person must innovate to continue to look cool. I'd like to shift to gift-giving, and I cannot be involved in a birthday party or gift-opening or whatever it is without thinking of your papers. And a couple things in particular stand out. There's the process of procuring the gift and then presenting the gift and then receiving the gift and then displaying the gift and then the reciprocation of course yeah. right which is huge and I'm actually trying to teach my kids this now right oh. and I also love all the stuff about how emotion laden gift giving is for both the gift giver and the receiver and how layering on top of that there's traditions and when two households combine like mine and my husband's and he's got certain traditions and I've got certain traditions and some of them mesh but most of them don't look out <laughs> people get their feelings hurt right that's right any anytime two people get together they have to decide how they're going to regard especially rituals and the way that we celebrate things and right. uh, how we eat and what a dinner is like and and so and is forth. a dinner a gift right Just well <laughs> Yeah, and it, it certainly could be. And it, even such things as do you serve it family style or does someone dish it out uh, for you is a different sort of power. Right. Different sort of I hadn't thought of that. So I was wondering, in the context of gift giving then, how would a gift differ in terms of 
its relationship to your self and identity than... I guess it's different for the giver and for the recipient. Uh, I mean for the recipient. The way you regard that gift is ideally to remember the giver and remember them in a favorable light. Now, it's not always favorable because you may get an inappropriate or quote-unquote ugly gift from someone. Right. And yet, because they're going to come to your house and see it uh, or where it should be, uh, you have to continue to own it. And so that's tarnishing your personality or your self-concept because you feel it's not really you. You don't really like this thing. But Mm. the social obligation is that you should continue to uh, display it. And that may be part of your identity as well, being gracious. Sure. And uh, the, the worst thing you can do is refuse a gift, say, I don't right. want this. Right. Uh, somewhere in between would be re-gifting, <laughs> where you take the gift and give it to someone else, hopefully not forgetting who was the original giver and giving it back to them. But uh, in that case, this is developing as a more acceptable uh, thing to do. It's uh, becoming more acceptable? It's becoming, it used to be extremely insulting, right? Yeah, and it, it used to be insulting, and uh, still is to some degree, to, to give a monetary gift or even a gift card rather than a tangible gift that you've actually sought out and thought about and found to be appropriate to the recipient and uh, appropriate to you. Emerson said that the, the true gift should be a, a part of you, and so right. you, you bring your skills and your interests to bear on uh, the gift. And from the receiver's point of view, the recipient's uh, point of view, uh, you, you're more appreciative because it really is a part of that giver. That uh, If, if uh, you send your secretary out to buy a gift for your partner, that's uh, inappropriate because you haven't put the time and effort and love and thought uh, right. into it. Uh, you probably know the uh, gift of the Magi by O. Henry, or I think nope. his real name was Porter. Uh, I think when you hear it, you'll recognize it. That Della and Jim were lovers, and they each had a special possession. Uh, in Jim's case, it was an heirloom watch, a uh, pocket watch, and one thing that people used to do was wear it on what's called a watch fob. Yep. But uh, he didn't have one, he just had the watch. Della had beautiful long hair. And Jim noticed as they passed a, a store that there were some tortoise shell combs in the window that Della eyed with uh, envy and desire. And so uh, what happened in the end, and this was Christmas uh, time, was that Della cut her hair and sold it to buy the watch fob for Jim, right. who had pawned his watch to buy the tortoise shell combs. So they were both functionally worthless gifts, but in terms of the thought and the communication, they were perfect gifts. Mm. Because they had sacrificed, uh, they had thought of the other person, they had uh, um, done away with any pretense that they might have of just trying to get a perfunctory gift. Staying in the the gift-giving realm, you mentioned that um, digital comments on social media are gifts. And I had not thought of that. So in my research, which is on word of mouth, I remember John Dayton said, kept grilling me, what is word of mouth, what is word of mouth, what is word of mouth? And then I said at one point, it's a gift. Mm -hmm. It could be a gift. And now we're seeing that uh, with all the social media comments, the likes, and particularly when people take the time to share things or to write comments about them, they are gifts, right? For many reasons. Um, Can you comment on that? It's sometimes called digital patina because you're adding to the person's uh, Facebook page or social media uh, page, whatever it might be, 
And in doing that, um, well, let, let me describe something that happens on Facebook, uh, for example. That yeah. Someone tags you in a photo, and uh, you put up a note saying, oh, I look terrible, I just gotten up, I had a bad night the night before. And they, of course, say, oh, you look beautiful, I wish I looked that good on a bad day. Right. And so they're reinforcing and affirming a positive self-concept for you. Right. And you're expected to do the same thing for them when the opportunity So the reciprocity thing, exactly. So there is reciprocity, but it also looks like it's a spontaneous comment from someone else rather than one that you really sort of said, you know, tell me something that contradicts the, the negative uh, feeder that I'm putting out there. And the same same thing happens on LinkedIn. Now, you endorse someone's skills, and they're expected to endorse your skills. Absolutely. And again, a, a reciprocity involved. Hmm. So I could bait someone yeah. into complimenting me. And we have to remember reciprocity can also be negative. And so if you say something snarky about someone else, they're likely to say something snarky about you absolutely huh when i interviewed um andrew jenkins on social media for a previous episode he said twitter is the snarky channel to be on so if you can't stand snarkiness stay away he said frankly i I love it it's irreverent and snarky and anyway um look at trump yeah well there you go (laughs) that's true i wasn't even thinking of trump um he comes up by the way every episode every episode sometimes implicitly but usually not I wanted to ask you, what are some of the most profound ways that you think the internet has affected our possessions? Well, if, if you think about music, uh, we used to have, well, you used to make mixtapes for someone that mm. was your ideal soundtrack for their life and expressing what you thought about them or what you thought they would like. And then I guess it went to mixed uh, CDs or DVDs, and now it's sort of playlists. And in terms of uh, how people might capture that music and and, uh, save it, if you will, uh, regard it as a possession, uh, might be, uh, you know, as an MP3 file uh, that they keep and categorize, perhaps, uh, and put on their digital device. Or it might be just the playlist and uh, you, you create a similar playlist on Spotify or some other streaming service. And this is different by generation, but yeah. if you're able to divest yourself from your physical uh, music collection mm. and only have it digital, that's one step. And then the other step would be not to have the digital files on your device and computer, but to simply subscribe to a, a streaming service where you can call them up. Um, I hadn't thought of that. So I, I had thought of the first step, yeah. right? So you hear these people transcribing their physical possessions into digital possessions, but then to actually forego that this wouldn't happen in a, in a photograph context, but in a music context, it would, where you can say, well, I can access that anytime on the internet. As long as you have access to the internet, I can always count this as part of my playlist. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting that you mentioned photographs because they are conceivably not ephemeral, but they're not tangible either. Because it's so cheap and easy to take more photos, we're inundated with photos. Right. Uh, we, we, we don't have curated collections of photos oftentimes other than perhaps a timeline that yeah. shows when they were taken, and we can date stamp them uh, as well. But. You're right that you can't, um, you know, call one up out of thin air and it's your picture of your beloved mother or something. Yeah, I mean, sometimes people will 
print out a photo or will tangibilize uh, a piece of digital music, um, burn a CD uh, still, something of that sort, for the music that they really like and for the photographs that are really important to them. But as I say, I think that may be generational and uh, the digital immigrants, uh, such as us, I guess, uh, are different than the digital natives that have always grown up in this ephemeral world. It's frightening, isn't it? I create um, photo albums for my kids whenever we go on vacation and my... Older aunts have said, your kids don't know how lucky they are. And then I'm thinking, actually, I don't think they will ever care. <laughs> so it's uh, definitely... Well, that's, that's nice, though. That, uh, yeah. they're, they're looking at at least another way to curate their photos. But related to the, the ways that the digital world has affected possessions, one thing that you brought up in your 2013 paper is um, dematerialization. And I find that fascinating because when... When I think about possessions, I think of functionality and symbolism. And I'm wondering if, when you talk about dematerialization, if that's related to a shift, maybe away from symbolism towards functionality, or? Yes and no. Uh, I think there can still be symbolism in digital goods. Uh, And we can still store memories in digital goods. We can have online memorials for someone who has died, uh, for example, and there's a great deal of symbolism and and, uh, expression that's a part of that. But we used to have love letters that we would write to a potential partner in longhand and send in the mail, and uh, they might take a while to get there, assuming you lived in in different places. Mm -hmm. And now we exchange uh, email, so there is still symbolism, but it's slippery. It can get away. When I think of possessions and displaying them, the first thing I always think of is the, the lawyer in the 80s driving up in his fancy white BMW, right? The classic symbol of the 80s, which was very focused on materialism. Can you comment on whether you think that there are cycles in and displaying materialism or whether over time it is just generally becoming less important or more important? Yeah, this differs culturally as well. But uh, yes, there are cycles and to some degree they're geared to the economy, to some degree they're geared to the size of the local population. I guess let me start out at the small village level. Uh, There are villages in India where things are changing, but it used to be that people would not display their wealth uh, because that would provoke envy in other people and that's a bad thing. Uh. When it gets big enough or the economy is flexible enough, you have the freedom uh, to change uh, spending patterns at least, then you can go the opposite direction and try to provoke other people's envy ah. and, uh, sort of more in your face uh, rather than avoiding that uh, envy provocation. Interesting. Uh, so if in a society there are opportunities for people to change their socioeconomic status, then it's more okay to display that? You have succeeded, for example? Yeah, we, we've studied materialism in various countries and the places and times when... it materialism is most rampant are times of rapid economic change when you either have the ability to try to climb in social class or you want to safeguard your social status position from 
the, the newcomers who are trying to emulate you. And so those are the places and times where we, we find uh, materialism is most evident. So I another trend that I'm sure you're um, familiar with is the small house and the tiny mm-hmm. house thing, where suddenly, I mean, they're, they're actually quite conspicuous. They're small, and ironically, they're very conspicuous, and they're, but they're communicating a value. Absolutely. As opposed to success, right? I mean, in, in times of ecological consciousness uh, or in times of like energy shortages, uh, like during the 70s when the first oil embargo took place, it becomes a status symbol to have a small, efficient, fuel-efficient uh, car. And uh, it may be that, uh, again, it's uh, catering to the values that are uh, salient at that time. Yeah. But also trying not to provoke envy because you think uh, the economy is hurting other people and you don't want to rub it in their faces quite as much. So the provoking envy thing reminds me of another question that I have, which is, can you share with us some misperceptions or mistakes that people make in their beliefs and then in their behaviors of displaying possessions where they might think they're communicating something, but they're actually communicating something else that they hadn't intended? Well, if, if uh, you've just given me a, a lovely gift of wine, and uh, I hesitated on opening it because there are different cultural standards about whether that's appropriate or not. And so usually in the West, we would open it and say, oh, this is lovely, that's, that's really thoughtful of you. Uh, whereas in Asia, and particularly Japan, that would be extremely rude to look wow. at what's in there because it could be a disappointing gift, and that would bring shame on the giver um, if you with your expression even unintentionally conveyed that well this is not the best gift and so uh, in in Asia there's much more attention to saving face than there is typically in the West and that's one way in which that's done and so people that are going into another culture have to learn new norms on what's appropriate and uh, conspicuous and um, but but we can overly stereotype I I was uh, co-hosting a conference in Perth, Australia, and uh, I was asked also to be a discussant on a paper about the difference between luxury in France and luxury in Australia. Mm. And the image of the French is that they're happy to flaunt it, whereas the image of the Australian is the tall poppy, that if one stands out above the rest, you cut them down so everyone's equal. And I began my talk by saying, well, this kind of rings true to me, but I have to say, we, I was reading this on the way in from the airport, and I had to ask my wife to turn down the TV on her side of the back seat so that uh, I could concentrate on the paper. So uh, even though we think of these cultural stereotypes, um, they, they don't always uh, ring true. And it's true, yeah. It's painting with a broad brush, I right. guess. Right. Yeah, you have to learn to be natural in a, in a culture where it's not natural for you to behave that way. Wow. Okay. Is there anything else that you can advise the listeners on in terms of communicating through our possessions? Well, uh, uh, again, cultural norms are important. So before you travel to another culture, trying to read up a bit about what is uh, appropriate and cultural norms and faux pas and uh, things that can go wrong. Uh, I, I guess it's a type of Communication, but also mindset. Um, with the so-called sharing economy, mm. uh, 
millennials in particular are becoming less attached to possessions and they're renting small places and uh, so again the dematerialization there's evidence of it everywhere they can rent furniture they can do without a car and uh, get by with uh, cars that they can can rent kitchen gadgets you can rent anything just about anything maids and butlers for the party people (laughs) yeah so at any rate if, if we think about that it, it could be one of two things. It could be that these millennials are still not having families and children, and when they do, they'll move out of the downtown core into the suburbs and buy a big home and fill mm. it up with stuff. Or it may be that this is a generational difference, and they're going to continue on this sort of uh, simplified lifestyle and lack of attachment and dematerialization of possessions. And I think it remains to be seen which of those is going to be likely to be true. But it could if be. If you had to guess? Well, I, I can see a future where with um, electric cars and the sharing economy, uh, owning a car becomes a, a cultural faux pas. It's a brutish thing to do and mm. it's a materialistic thing to do and you must be a fat pig if you own a car. So we could uh, you know, hire cars, we can share cars, we can share other forms of transport. And if that's the case, uh, rather than getting attached to a brand of automobile, the white BMW that you uh, mentioned, that uh, we we just get a standard car from a pool of cars, and it doesn't matter whether we own that car or not. It's just, it's it's lost some of its symbolism and become more of a functional possession. Now, I don't think we'll ever do away with with symbolism, but we may find other ways to communicate uh, what we think of ourselves and, and other people and Okay, I'm going to move on now to asking you the five rapid-fire questions that I ask every guest, okay? Okay. The first question is, what are your pet peeves? Well, I have about a 45-minute to an hour commute to come into the university, and uh, I don't like people who drive slowly in the center lane rather than the right lane. They can be as slow as they want in the right lane. A lot of people share that pet peeve with you. Oh, interesting. So I'm not alone. No. So what do you do with them? Do you honk at them or do you just pass them? I I just pass them, but I might give them a snide look uh, and shake my head as I pass them. Okay, Okay, second question. What type of learner are you? Well, the the good academic answer to such a question is it depends. Right. It depends on whether I'm, for instance, trying to learn a physical skill. Uh, in which case, kinesthetic, uh, being able to feel what it is like to do that ski movement. Uh, Versus watching a video or whatever. Yeah. What if you're trying to memorize something? What's the fastest way or most effective way for you to get it into your brain? To outsource it to Google. <laughs> <laughs> There's an article by uh, Carr in Atlantic Monthly saying, uh, asking in his headlines, Google making us stupid because we no longer have to remember things we just... Google it on our device, but uh, I mean we, we have gotten comfortable with spell checkers and uh, with uh, you know, calculators. Uh, even though we may not be able to do the math and spelling as well as we would have if we had to do it ourselves, uh, but this is actually a very old argument uh, between uh, Plato and Socrates because. Oh. Plato was sort of the first of the great authors, Socrates was the last of the great orators, and so Socrates accused Plato of uh, making us dumb because he only looks things up in books. He no longer has to create the argument in his mind, so it's a pretty old argument. I hadn't thought of that. Question number three, introvert or extrovert? Depends, once again. uh, if, If I'm in 
an airport. I don't try to strike up conversations with other people. I'm not that outgoing. But uh, in a classroom, I become extroverted. And uh, I'm giving a talk uh, in front of a conference. I've become more extroverted. I've even introduced things with a song and dance. And really? Sure. I haven't not. seen that. <laughs> I'm going to check that out on YouTube. Are you on YouTube on singing YouTube, and dancing? But... I'm going to check. Fourth question. Communication preference for personal conversations. If you need to connect with someone socially about something quickly, how would you do that in terms of what media would you use? Depends on the person. I'm uh, saying depends again. Yeah, yeah. My, my wife, uh, bless her, is only literate in email, and so I, I can't text her even for uh, that matter. So, so does she check her email a lot, therefore? She does. We both spend a lot of time in front of a screen each day, and um, you know, it's, it's a... It's a little non-message saying, I'm thinking of you, I'm, I'm here, when I'm traveling abroad, we'll do the same thing. And it's sort of saying, yeah, I'm here, I'm in touch if you need me, and I'm thinking of you. Uh, if it's a social relationship with a friend uh, and I want to congratulate them, uh, I could post something on their Facebook uh, wall or do... A variety because of you want other people to see. Yeah, exactly. I just did that this morning. Jerry Zaltman got an yeah. AMA award. Yeah. I put it on Twitter, um, Facebook, and Instagram. Great. Yeah, because yeah. I want... Yeah. Those are the contagious things as well. I yeah. hope so. Okay, last question. Podcast or blog or email newsletter that you recommend the most? I suppose TED Talk blogs uh, or TED Talk um, uh, podcasts uh, are what I would turn to. Is there anything else you want to say about possessions or and or gift giving in the context of communication? There's so much to say. I, I know. wouldn't know what to pick out, but uh, this has been interesting. It was fun. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. So, did you catch Russ's life hack related to avatars? When I asked him whether an avatar is a possession or a part of the self, he said, an avatar is a pseudo-self. It's a self and a possession. It's an alter ego. Then he went on to describe some research that demonstrates how if you assign someone a taller and a more attractive avatar, they become more self-confident. That's crazy. So then here's the life hack. Ask a friend to create an avatar for you. It could be a Bitmoji or a gaming avatar or whatever. And make sure the avatar is more attractive and more fit than you are in real life. Apparently, according to this research, your avatar will have a positive effect and rub off on you. I love that. I also loved it when Russ described how people feel obligated online to respond to self-denigrating comments with compliments. So if I post, I look horrible in this picture, someone will post a big compliment. Now that I've heard that from Russ, I realize that I see this all the time. If you're feeling down then, post something self-denigrating, and watch the compliments pour in. Did you also catch how both he and Carolyn Quinn, the fashionista that I interviewed last week, both talk about the mismatch of identity when people don't dress their age? Again, people, dress your age. And then Russ also mentioned two other things related to fashion and clothing. He mentioned how moguls may dress their wives and their children in finery that they themselves may not like but that clearly communicates their wealth. He also mentioned how cool people aren't cool because of their clothing or their possessions, but rather because of their demeanor. But others mimic their possessions and their clothing, forcing the cool person to constantly innovate and adopt new fashions. Huh, I hadn't thought of it that way. 
Let me conclude now with three key learnings from this interview. These three key learnings are, one, the effect of culture, two, the evolving nature of our identity, and three, the effects of dematerialization. First, culture. When I asked Russ about common mistakes that people may make when they're trying to implicitly communicate things, particularly through their possessions, he mentioned that culture plays a significant role. In fact, how we describe ourselves varies by culture. In the Western world, we may describe ourselves in terms of our careers, whereas in India, people would begin describing themselves in terms of who their parents and their grandparents were, where they lived, and maybe eventually get around to themselves. Russ also highlights how in Chinese culture, for example, you have a debt to your parents for the gift of your own birth, and you pay back that debt over a lifetime. And speaking of gifts, cultures certainly vary in their gift-giving traditions. So this all goes back to the advice that we've all heard before. We need to be more culturally sensitive. The second key learning is that our identity, our self, is not static. It evolves over time. That's actually empowering, right? You can change or improve your reputation or your identity. Russ used the term ephemeral several times, meaning fleeting or temporary. We've all heard about how nowadays people are more likely to have several different careers over their lifetime. This is just one example of how our identities can evolve. Possessions can also be ephemeral, and more and more of them may be, given the effects of digitization and the sharing economy. That brings me to the last key learning, dematerialization. Russ highlighted how the extent to which materialism is acceptable varies by culture and by the state of the economy. That makes sense. It is offensive to demonstrate material success when there's no way others can access that opportunity. He also notes how the younger generations Generations Y and Z seem to be exhibiting a more simplified lifestyle, a lack of attachment, and dematerialization of their possessions. He highlights that the sharing economy is probably propelling these changes. Regardless of this dematerialization trend, though, Russ concludes by saying, I don't think we will ever do away with symbolism, but we may find other ways to communicate what we think about ourselves and about other people. That makes sense, doesn't it? And in my opinion, it will be absolutely fascinating to experience and witness these changes. So, that's it. If you're interested in learning more about how we communicate through our possessions, I did some research that I'll share in this week's Talk About Talk email blog. If you're not already signed up, you really are missing half the fun. Just go to talkabouttalk.com to sign up for the blog and to access all of the past blogs. One last thing. Please don't hesitate to reach out to me on social media or email. Talk About Talk is on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. My email is andrea at talkabouttalk.com. Thanks again so much for listening. Have a great week, and talk soon!